there was the slightest hope that you know my next job was going to be flying a Falcon. So we said no to the sure thing of going back to Sydney Seaplanes, and we hedged our bets that this would come off. Now, of course, there was no guarantee, but somehow deep down, it, it had to happen for me. Welcome aboard the High Fly Media Podcast, dedicated to sharing the stories and experiences of the amazing people who make aviation happen. From pilots like me, to engineers, air traffic controllers and others, I'll explore their personal journeys, the challenges they've faced and the triumphs they've achieved. My name is Damien and I'll be your host. Whether you're a seasoned aviation enthusiast or new to the field, I invite you to join me as we take off on this journey of discovery. Welcome to the High Fly Media Podcast. Today we're honoured to have a true aviation expert, Alex Penrose, join us on the podcast. With a wealth of experience as a global 6500 captain and a seasoned corporate pilot, Alex's journey in the skies has taken him from the serene Gold Coast to the vibrant streets of Tokyo. Join us as we navigate through his aviation journey, exploring the highs, challenges and the breathtaking views from seaplanes to high-performance jets. Thank you so much for coming on, Alex. I'm sure, well, I definitely appreciate it. And I'm sure after our listeners finish this episode, they'll also appreciate your your input. No problem. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, uh, Alex and I just had a quick chat and obviously in preparing for catching up with him today, um, we've had to compare calendars and, and, and time zones. He's actually, Alex, you're sitting in Vancouver at the moment. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So uh, it's our final trip of the year. I'm currently... Uh, Staying at the western, anyone who knows Vancouver, it looks right over the uh, right over the harbour down there. So I'm actually, as we speak, looking at a uh, a single engine Osra about to land. So it's definitely uh, taking me back to um, to my previous aviation career before before the jets. So d- definitely pretty cool to be uh, to be here right now. That's so cool. And just take us through, uh, if you don't mind, take us through your flight legs to get to Vancouver. Where did you, where did you come from? Where, where did you originate from? Uh, rather uneventfully boring. This is um, basically because Russia is closed at the moment for most foreign aircraft. And I can't give too much away in, in registrations about you know, what the aircraft registration is or who I fly. But um, at the moment, the aircraft, the 6500, has basically been a very nice nip and tuck of the global express platform. So it's got updated engines and a bit of a cleaner wing, if you want to call it that. Nice. So it now gives us it now gives us a range to get back from Western Europe all the way back to Tokyo. Unfortunately, though, with Russia still closed, we can't make it nonstop to Europe. So. What we do as, as an operation and uh, what a few other aircraft have been doing, they've been either using Vancouver or Seattle as basically a, a tech stop. So fly as fast as you can over to, uh, to Vancouver. We normally do it at 0.85. Um, we do cruise swap there. We're on the ground. We put fuel back in it and then the aircraft then continues on to, uh, continues on to Europe. So. Um, part, part of the challenges with Russia being closed, but we've uh, we've got this down fairly. There's a fairly slick operation now to be able to have crew waiting there to do the swap. And um, yeah, but uh, that's that's why I'm currently sitting in Vancouver because I flew the aircraft in with, uh, with one of the other pilots, and um, we're actually waiting for it to come back. So on uh, in a few days' time, we'll fly back to Tokyo. Lovely, lovely. So you get a few days to of R and R in in Vancouver, and then back for across a hop, hop, hop across the Pacific. 
Yeah, not, not a Pacific. I don't particularly want to call it R and R because I know my wife will be listening in the future. And, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it's been one of the worst weeks to be away uh, oh, with, no. uh, two, with, with two, two children with uh, with temperatures, and she's just coming out of influenza as well. So, oh, no. uh, but you know, she the unsung hero. She is at home looking after the children. So I don't, I don't want to say it's R and R, but it's definitely it's. Uh, it's we are waiting for the aircraft to to arrive back so we can fly it back. Well, I, I say R and R, but you know, there's the, yeah. there's the sweating that you'll be doing doing all that important flight planning and you know. Of course, you know it. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she knows what's going on. Just bring us something back nice. Yes, yes. I think, that, I think that's the plan. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So this aircraft, and I I, I did a bit of a quick. Um, research on to be honest when you said you were a global 6500 captain i was like who makes that and then i went and had a dig around and saw that it was bombardier and it appears that it's like a uh, this excuse me for my ignorance on this airframe it, it appears that it's like a shortened version of of uh, crj um i don't want to say shortened because it is still quite a big machine the, the best way to think about it is I mean, because we fly on the FAA, so all our recurrents are done in, done in feet. So basically, um, imagine a 100-foot by 100-foot box. That's, uh, that's basically our platform. The, the, C, the CRJ, the, the shorter ones, they're definitely smaller than us. I'm, wow. not too sure about, I'm not too sure about the CRJ 900, but um, the, the, it, we, we sit a bit higher. If you look at how basically where the wing box is on, on the global, you can see the main difference between the shape of it, even though the Bombardier aircraft all look very similar. The main difference is like the, the slight bulge around the wing box and that's where a lot of our, a lot of our fuel is stored. So, ah. um, so that's like this slight giveaway to, to pick out a global from a CRJ. And also you know, we've got much more, I don't want to say more powerful because I don't know the stats on them, but our engines are considerably bigger than the CRJ as well. So um, a few a few subtle differences, but uh, if you see, especially in the US, we do see a CRJ that has been converted to a business jet from afar. They do look quite similar. Right. Yeah, that's probably what got me. And then is it true that our Australian Air Force here are flying, I'm going to call it the little sibling, yeah, so the, the Challenger 600 is in business jet land. That's a, a super mid-size. So it's got the same cabin width as the Global. Okay. But um, de de definitely a lot, it's a bit more stunted. Um, it, and that is a lot closer related to the actual airliner than, than we are. So right. the, 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 cha the Challenger is more so a derivative per se of the crj yeah. whereas the global was you know from from day one a, a clean sheet design business jet so yeah yeah beautiful i did get to sit in a Gulfstream 650 at like avalon 2013 and it was just beautiful so i'm kind of thinking it's on that same kind of level it is it's the, both the 650 and the global they call it the basically the four big screens in it is the vision flight deck um and it's just it's so user intuitive you know we use the track rules um the the fms is has got a very logical flow to it and for spending long hours at a time it is a very nice place to work um my my only 
my only complaint, especially now after being on it for nearly five years and then having come from the Falcon, is that for the, for the long, longer range flights, it would be nice to go back to side stick. I know some people are going to be screaming right now going, oh, no, <laughs> I can't believe we said that. But for, for the operation that these aircraft do, you know, when, you, when they've got a range of 10, 11, 12 hours, you know, it's just it's, uh, for, for how little you do hand fly them. Yeah. Um, that, that extra little space would, would be nice again. But, but then in saying that, no, I, I do love the actual platform, the, the global platform, you know, especially now the, uh, the slight nip and tuck of the 6500. But yeah, it's, um, if you look at the cockpit, it's very similar to the 650. But this, uh, I'm, again, I'm going to have a few people go on, oh, no, he's not a Gulfstream uh, lover. But the avionics in the, in the global are probably a good five, six years ahead of, of where the Gulfstream is, right. the 650. Um, but then with the new, new Gulfstream, they're probably taking another leap ahead of us. So it's it, it's a very, very, there's a lot of um, rivalry in the industry. They're all trying to outdo each other, which again, for us as pilots is a good thing as well because we yeah. just get, we get newer and better toys from it. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So, okay, we've talked about you captaining uh, a Global 6500. You've mentioned the Dassault Falcon. I want to go right back. So can you tell us about what shaped interest in aviation and including what inspired you to pursue this career in aviation? Oh, of course. I mean, I was, you know, one of those people who were one of those boys who just loved absolutely anything that moved if it had an engine, you know, whether it's a car or aircraft or, you know, truck or a bus. And I did, you know, I've said very, very early on that growing up in the UK up until we moved to Australia, you know, we lived near one of the, one of the busiest, maybe not the best to some people, but as far as a young boy is concerned, one of the best air, one of the best airports around, and that was Heathrow. Right. So you know, in and out to see you know the classic seven four sevens, seven five sevens, and especially Concorde. You know, just oh, wow. the, the 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 impression that aircraft like that, and with that really, um, you know, with that really iconic, you know the late 1980s early 1990s ba livery yeah just for me just for me i was like no that is what's a job that you could do so that had definitely had an impression on a on a four or five year old at the time um and then of course we i had uh, grandparents in scotland so every six months if i can remember it was about every six months i used to jump on the flight up to uh, up to glasgow and still one of those things which will remain with me for for life is just the impression of a very lightly loaded Boeing 757 just hurtling down the runway mm. and just to, to to feel power like that that for me was like the, the nail in the coffin for me I just <laughs> I, I, that's all, all I wanted to do was to be able to in a position where I could you know I open the throttles like that and yeah so that that was pretty much the the way I got in my interest for aviation. My grandfather was also in the RAF. He was, um, you know, an engineer in the RAF, and uh, he was mad about Rolls-Royce engines. Um, so he had all these diagrams and schematics which he would show. And that's cool. You know, also, also in his, his in his house in Scotland, you know, there'll be these beautifully done wall art, wall art, sorry, of uh, 
know, Lancasters, Spitfires, Mosquitoes. Yeah. So there was there was always there was always like a a way that aviation was installed probably came through him. Yeah. And then of course, you know, my mum then being an Air Force child as well, you know, also you know, heard about, you know, as a as a third party, you know, my grandfather's time, you know, throughout his RAF career and and I also do mention it, you know, on that Facebook page that in Glasgow at the airport there, there was this big cutaway of an of a Rolls Royce engine, the RB two eleven. And every time that we were there to drop off saying goodbye to uh to the Scottish side of the family, my grandfather would take me aside and you know, basically explain, you know, this is a big fan, that's N one, then you know, you got the N two stage and it runs on you know, basically all the boring stuff, which, you know, as as a you know five six year old you know, probably means nothing, but I look back on it now and it's actually probably one of the the best early educations of aviation I had. So, like from from that regard, that's probably that is how it stuck. And um, yeah, from then on, there was only one thing which I wanted to do, and that was to be a professional pilot. That's awesome. And you know, I think of like you say, you know, as a five or six year old. It wasn't overly exciting to hear about the fan and, and the N1 stage and the N2 stage and the combustion chamber and all that kind of thing. But I imagine for your grandfather to be able to share that knowledge with his grandson, it would have been a, an important moment for him, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a shame that you know, he didn't get to, to see basically the career. He passed away when I was 16. So, right. But um, it still makes me smile every now and again by the fact that you know on the back of the global there's two two big Rolls-Royce engines yeah. so yeah it's um again I think it's almost gone full circle from yes. standing at that standing at that airport in uh, in Glasgow I love it I love it now I suspect you're probably about a decade maybe more younger than me if you've got little kids was your grandfather in the second world war he was yes so to be honest right on the spot I don't know the ins and outs of where he was but he was in the second world war and then he remained in the service until well on until uh, the 60s, I think the 70s as well. I've just got to work out how old my mum is now. She'll be horrified by this. But, <laughs> don't say it. Don't say but, it. No, 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 I'm definitely not going to. Don't worry. But uh, <laughs> So de- definitely would have gone into the 70s. Um, yeah, okay. And that's about when my dad got in. So my dad got into the Air Force in, it was in the late 60s. Um, oh, nice. My grandfather served in the Army in the Second World War in Syria. Um, but it's so cool to think that your grandfather, uh, that he was there, he was there when the Battle of Britain took place. He was, there were aircraft, there was all the stuff that we see in, in documentaries and, and, you know, my equal first favourite movie, The Battle of Britain, he was there. Like, he was in that area, as was your grandmother. And- absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more and even you know, he's, uh, you know, tell me that the Spitfire was the best made British aircraft, I should say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, but he had an absolute passion for aviation. And it's funny just talking about it with you right now. It's probably, it's definitely, you know, without a question of doubt, where I got the bulk of the, the desire to wanting to, to pursue aviation from. That's so cool. You've got such a cool aviation heritage, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't think about it like that, but yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's pretty awesome. So your grandfather, maybe deliberately, maybe selfishly, whatever the, the motive was, or maybe he was just a loving grandfather that wanted to share his passion, which is what I dare say it was. He's primed you, so to speak, to, um, to want to pursue a career 
in aviation. Where'd the start come from? So you, you mentioned earlier that you moved to Australia as a young fella. Where did that start? Where did you first go on your trial introductory flight? Where did you first solo, all that kind of thing? So the, the first trial introductory flight, flight was actually uh, present for, for finishing school from, uh, from a family friend. And I, I, by this stage, I knew that I was you know, going, to, going to be flying. Um, I've also said been very lucky to have, very fortuitous to have parents who have supported it both, you know, financially and also, you know, from a from a personal point of view, yeah. the early stages. And so the first trial flight was the end of 2005, about December 2005. And, you know, we were at, at Bankstown, a little Piper, Piper Warrior. And for me, just you know, going out and sitting in left-hand seat of that with the instructor and it was just it was again another reinforcement of all right and this is this is what i want to do and i tell you what that that hour was one of the quickest hours i've ever had <laughs> to, to 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 come back into bankstown yeah. um knowing that the the course for me to start was wasn't until that following march in 2006 that was a very very long summer wait so you know got myself Basically, read the Piper Warrior Manual, you know, yeah. like from front to back, and all over the BAK as well. I imagine pretty much, you know, getting, uh, you know, I heard that um, Bob Tate was the uh, were the books to have, so yeah, yeah. made sure I got the BAK and the PPL, and yeah, that was a very long wait, you know, working in um, working in cafes and just getting through until the start of flying and. Yeah, then when I started full time, I was like, right, this is it. Time, time to time to give this a, a good crack and prove to myself that it was the career that I wanted. And yeah, my God, it was. I, I invested in you know pretty much all all my spare energy into it to make sure you know the, there was there was no resets and to um, yeah to to just enjoy it. Did eventually catch up with me by the end of the training. I do feel exhausted, which yeah. you know probably probably after eighteen months going full time, well about fifteen months full time, I should say. That you know, by the end of it, I was felt exhausted, but I had my my shiny license in my hand. So for our non Antipodean listeners, our school year down here finishes. Well, you would have finished grade twelve probably early November. Correct. Yeah. And so you had a four-month wait basically over the Christmas season and like you mentioned, you worked, which obviously would have gone a long way to help funding it. And so when you kicked off in March, you said it was 18 months of learning. Would I be safe in assuming that that included your commercial as well? Yeah, so that was so what I get. So private, um, commercial, got instructor rating and also multi-engine instrument rating. So basically the, oh, the whole, the whole hog. Yeah. yeah, so I think I was done the very end of July 07 and then after that it was wanting to get to the airlines as quickly as possible so I went over to the UK to go and do the JAR ATPLs which were they were then called yeah. the 14 exams did those and then to be honest at the end of those I felt really really burnt out so it was back to Sydney just to have a bit of bit of recovery time if you want to call it that yeah because it had been had been you know as, as near as it makes no difference by that stage nearly two two and a half years of just full-time work full-time in the books and yeah. flying and 
And this is something which I've learned, especially as I get older, you do need to have a bit of time out away from it or to be able to have a release away from aviation. Mm-hmm. But um, so back to Sydney and then see this nicely leads on to. So living where we were in Sydney, very, very close to Rose Bay and to see all the seaplanes coming in and out. And for those who don't know Rose Bay, when the wind is blowing a certain direction, it's a very, very last minute turn to then come back into the bay to give you enough space to land. And I was watching these, you know, these beavers and um, and everything else going, and that was like the calling card. It just was like, right, I need to need to get into seaplanes somehow. <laughs> right. So that was where you were headed. Then that's interesting. So you've done a commercial, you've done an instructor rating, you've done multi-engine command which obviously would all serve you later on down the track, but makes complete sense if you were heading for the airlines. To me, it's almost like you've come back for that break, allowed your mind to open up, and then that seaplane operation, flying beavers, maybe that was just getting back to that grassroots flying, maybe that's what appealed to you. It's, I think being away, being away from Australia and also seeing the Australian way how you have to go out, you have to get hours, you have to go and do, not, don't want to say grassroots flying because seaplane flying really isn't, but you need True. to, you need, you need to make a name for yourself and also to build up the ranks. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. It's the way they do it in Europe, but you know, for when you can go into the right hand seat of a 320 or 737 with 250 hours. Oh my goodness. It was that, at that stage, just I lost the appeal for it. I wanted to go and enjoy some some proper flying. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I was, I was looking at: do I head up north? Do I go to you know up to the Northern Territory or you know, the top end of Western Australia? But then it was just one of those moments where I just thought, you know, I really, really do want to get into into seaplane. So then, of course, started the the researching of how to of how to get into seaplanes. Now, 200 odd hours, there's very, very few people who would take you, let alone employ you. So the idea was to find an operation who would do the training and then give a bunch of ICAS time. So in command on the supervision for those who don't know the aviation terms, but basically that to get to a stage where the insurance companies would potentially look at you because that was a big unknown it's, you know, for, for someone who was so green and so fresh. Now, what I didn't realize is I was stepping into a part of aviation where you had to have, you know, there's 50 hours sitting with someone next to you. So eventually I came across an operator on the Gold Coast and they did the training and then they said, but if you are good enough throughout the training, we will... We will, you know, invest time into you to to get you up to fifty hours, and and then he said he said the magic words, and then he said, if we are good enough and we need someone, then we can put you on, you know, a day or two a week, which then might lead to two or three days a week. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I thought, right, you know, this this is my opportunity to be able to um, to be able to you know, to try and prove prove my worth. So, packed the car, left Sydney early 2009 went up to the gold coast did my training up there got through the training and just fell on another seaplane flying just thought you know this is fantastic because you're you're it's not just on and off a runway you're, you're reading 
you know, you're reading the water, you're reading the weather conditions a lot more. Even though it's day VFR flying, there is a lot more thought that goes into it than just, you know, runway to runway. Boats on the water. Exactly. Yeah. Boats on the water, jet, jet skis who want to race you, the, the, the whole lot. <laughs> what were you flying at the Goldie? So, started off and I did my training on the 185. Okay. And unfortunately, so oh, without getting ahead of myself, unfortunately, that aircraft was involved in a, in a flip. And then that was replaced with the 206. So, um, they, they were both two very good machines to, to learn, you know, learn the craft of seaplane flying on. Right. So, you learned on, on, at the Gold Coast. Where were you flying out of at the Gold Coast? Just somewhere on the broad water. So the the aircraft was actually based in Coomera, uh, so we used the the back waterways there. So we used to tow it into the water every every morning, and then so we operated out of SeaWorld as well as uh-huh. the day resort the the day resorts on South Stradbroke Island, and also there was another resort there called Karan Cove. So we operated out of there. And I still remember my first actual day where I got released and being a paid pilot. Yeah, I had to do a, I had to do a transfer from SeaWorld up to uh, up to well, as near as makes no difference, Brisbane Airport. But we couldn't land you know, right on the airport because it was a straight flight. So we went over the bridge and landed just on the uh, just on the very very start of the river there. And then they had a chauffeur car waiting. So that was an amazing amazing way to start. You know, my first paid day of flying seaplanes. That's so cool. And you know, it was an earlier guest, uh, Josh Volani, who's now flying A321 over in Las Vegas. He did the whole, worked in, well, he did the NT, he did Cairns, and then he ended up fr- flying um, freight out of Bankstown. Yep. Before he went over to the US and started flying for the airlines. And, and he said in, in our conversation that, you know, he's had conversations with other airline pilots, young guys like himself, and they'll just be sharing experiences and he's talking about flying over the Great Barrier Reef and, you know, outback Australia when it was stormy and the runway was flooded and all this kind of stuff and they've never had that because they basically did, they went from training into the airlines like through a cadetship or whatever it might have been and and he just, the advice he gave was, especially for new pilots, go and get the experience, you know. Sure, flying in an airline is amazing um, and the money's very good but you're not going to get those experiences. And, and when you said that, I, I just thought of Josh and I thought, you know, if you'd kept going down the path you were heading in the UK, you wouldn't have had that landing over the Gateway Bridge to drop someone off to go and for a connecting flight at Brisbane Airport. It just would never would have happened. It's an amazing story. Yeah, absolutely. And to the stage where I'm very, very happy flying the jets, but the seaplane flying, it really, really taught me how to fly a stick and rudder. And... It is just, it's the most amazing way where for those who potentially are interested, you can make a semi-decent career and living out of it. I mean, of course, it's not going to be airline level style of, of wage or corporate style worth of wage, but it's a fantastic way to basically have that, as silly as it sounds, that raw motor flying skill because it, it, it is all about stick and rudder. And from what I hear, now, I've never flown a tail dragger, but seaplane flying is quite akin to to tail dragger, both you know, take off and landing, and then you've got to remember that you've got the floats dangling beneath you, so yeah. you need to be very on the ball until you get to an aircraft like a caravan that's got the yaw damper in it. <laughs> Interesting. Seaplane on the same kind of vein where you're dancing on the pedals. 
Yeah, that's that's a take off, especially with the the caravan on the water, because you got so much power from the engine. Yeah, it's just you you are like dancing on the rudder pedals on, on the takeoff run. It's just yeah, sorry, listeners, I haven't flown flights for ten years, so could, if I'm if I'm wrong with this, then I apologise. But the, the Beaver Beaver was exactly the same because you, you know you got four hundred old horsepower from a big radial engine that just wants to twist you, and yeah. then. You, you, then you're dealing with you know, the, the components of the waterway as well, and yeah, yeah it's, it's it is. I, I still maintain for those who for those who want to go and try something different. Yes, it's not cheap, but a seaplane rating is some of the most fun flying you'll have. So where where to from the Gold Coast? You you obviously you racked up a, a number of hours with this firm. You headed further up north. So yeah, so by this stage. I've done a few trips back to Sydney. Well, I mean, my parents are still there, and with um, with Sydney seaplanes just being on the doorstep, had you know stuck my head in a few times and started to annoy the, the then chief pilots by saying, "You know, I'm here, I'm available if you ever need me." <laughs> um, oh, this was the company back gave, in Rose Bay. Yes, in ah, Rose Bay. Yeah, right. But they he gave my number to the chief pilot of. The chief pilot of seaplanes on on Hamilton Island. So okay. it was a joint heli- it was a joint helicopter and and seaplane company. So one afternoon, just taxing out in the Broadwater, get get a call from a number I don't know. So uh, slightly slightly skeptical, I thought I'll answer it, and ends up yeah being the chief pilot from Hamilton Island, and he we just had a chat and. He said, "I've got your number and your CV from uh, from from Sydney Seaplanes. Would you be interested in potentially coming up to have an interview?" And so we spoke about what the operation was. Um, the company there had just taken over the t- the tender from from the previous outfit on Hamilton Island, and they had just gone in with a complete, basically, they gutted the old operation. They brought, you know, completely redid it, made sure that they had you know top class machines. They just got just bought a, in inverted commas, new beaver over from uh, from the US. So completely refurbished, not an inch of corrosion in it. So, mm. of course, my, my ears then lit up and went, okay, this is a way to a way to get up the seaplane ladder. So, got back home that night and my then girlfriend's she could tell that she was slightly skeptical. She didn't want to head up north, but then, from my point of view, and this is in the early days, to make to move up the ladder, you need to be selfish. And said, "Look, I think I need to go up for the interview." Went up for the interview to Hamilton Island, and really fell in love with the where they're operating from. The trips out to. They weren't landing at the reef at that stage, but they were going to um, to Whitehaven Beach, and it was also the first time I saw a caravan on floats. And I, even though I was not trained in it, the 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 chief pilot said, "Look, just come out in the caravan, sit in the front, let me know what you think, and yeah, we'll we'll have a chat." So took me out for a flight, um, went over to Whitehaven. So now in a caravan, here it was. This mythical beast the the, the turbine yeah. powered air conditioned air conditioned seaplane which was just you know i was falling in love with it i can relate <laughs> yeah. and then 
we just got talking and it was one of those days just be the perfect seaplane day so about five to ten knots worth of breeze there was no issue at the beach and just the way that uh the way he made this caravan pull up at whitehaven beach jump out turn around unload everyone they had a uh, a beach host so basically push the push the plane off throw the anchor out and just yeah we spoke for an hour and a half about the operation and by this stage, you know, I was already sold and just had to have <laughs> had, 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 had to have a quick interview with the general manager yeah. and spoke to the general manager. Um, and yeah, he said, well, when can you start? So that was how I got into Hamilton Island Air. So, and so initially, were you flying the Beaver up there or did they quickly get you onto the caravan? No, no, so definitely it was because of the way this stage I only had about 500 hours. So again, very, very, still quite green and still well, green in the industry, but also green in seaplane land. Right. Um, but again, you know, they, they took, a, they took a chance on this, you know, up and up and coming cocky idiot who I, <laughs> who I'm referring to as myself at that stage. Um, and yeah, the the aircraft arrived on the Gold Coast, got put together on the Gold Coast, and as soon as the paperwork was done and it went on the VH register, we um, we flew back down from Amazon to go and pick it up, and yeah, we uh, we flew all the way up the coast to Hamilton Island, and that was the start of the, the start of flying the big machines, we want to call it that, and yeah, so. I I was absolutely in love with that aircraft. It was, and it's still VH ZDA, so Zilla Delta Alpha. To this day, is still my favourite piston aircraft I've ever flown. There was just something about it. It just, it, yes, it was an old machine. I think it was 1954, if I remember. Yeah, right. But it was just absolutely stunning. It, you know, everything inside was just, you know, it was refurbished to basically show spec in fact it was a show aircraft with a float manufacturer and um, whip line and it showed inside and it just yeah it was a beautiful aircraft to look at and amazing to to fly there was there was just something about that aircraft it felt compared to other amphib beavers i flew it felt like it had another 100 horsepower it just flew exactly as you wanted it to absolutely gorgeous machine i mean i could speak for an hour based on just how good zda was yeah. i'm sure bore a few people but yeah, it was a magic aircraft. Wouldn't bore me. <laughs> I was, I'd almost completed my commercial in, by the end, well, beginning of October 2010. That's where I was in my journey at that time. When you were in seaplanes, yeah. I was plugging around in a 182 out of uh, Toowoomba. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, no. I loved it. And I loved that airframe, Mike Sierra Tango. Had its own idiosyncrasies that yeah. you had to deal with. Um, but you learn that. You know, you put enough hours in an airplane and you learn its character and you learn and this isn't for you because you know this, but it's for the listeners that maybe haven't had that experience. You learn what she's like and what she likes and what she doesn't like and how to fly her. And and, and it sounds like you had that relationship with Zulu Delta Alpha. Oh, 100%. And so to kind of keep keep the journey going at this stage, so by this time the, the, there was a glass cockpit caravan which was coming, as I just said, so there was no expense spared with the machinery. They, you know, they wanted to be one of the best tour operators in the in the country, and it showed with how the aircraft were presented, how the reception was. It was just, it was 
a really good place to work. Um, I know some people didn't get on with the general manager, uh, but he was very firm but fair. And he's one of those people who, you know, I'm forever grateful for, which I'll get to in a minute. But what happened is that the then girlfriend was not happy living on Hamilton Island. So I thought, oh, well, she followed me there. There's a job coming up in Cairns. So went further north to Cairns and flew there for a year, flew another Amphib Beaver and a straight float and for the first for the first six months it was a pretty decent job but the the management up there they did destroy a perfectly good company and by the end of that we i was me and the chief pilot who also came from the wit sunday so he worked for air wit sunday at the time so we kind of went up together and we kind of came back down together right but we we both started to to just see what was going on in, in the seaplane world um and ironically, so Hamilton Island Air and also Airwit Sunday were both after seaplane pilots. So you know, I rang the new chief pilot of seaplanes who was there when I first started. He was one of the line guys and we had a really, really good relationship. Yeah. In fact, still do. And I said, Look, you know, if, if you want me to come back, I'll come back. Kind of tell between my legs, knew that I had, don't say made the wrong decision, but knew it probably wasn't the best decision to go up to Cairns. And so anyway, then I get a call from the general manager a day later and he goes, oh, Alex, you know, I hear you want to come back. I was like, yes, I do. He goes, well, let, let me have a think about it. And, you know, basically what, what do you want out of, you know, what do you want out of the company? I said, I want to go back and enjoy work. And I do want to get on the caravan. There's no two ways about it. So the following morning at about 8.30, he rings me up and says, when can you start again? Oh, wow. So um, that's why I just said, you know, forever grateful for for Hamilton Island Air. And if I trace everything back to where I am now, I've said this before, it was going back to Hamilton Island Air, which positioned me to where I am today. So forever forever grateful of, of being able to go back to that company. And it goes without saying, I think, Alex, and, um, you know, for the listeners, Alex and I have only ever spoken for the last 45 or so minutes, so I don't really know him from before that. For them to take you back meant that you had to have been a good pilot, you had to have been uh, a good operator, you had to have been good with the customers, you know, all of those things. Otherwise, they would have said no. I am one who, I'm very open and honest, probably does my wife, my wife's head in, but I've very difficult to take praise, but I'll take that and say thank you to that. Um, there, there was definitely a reason why I did, why I was allowed to go back. Um, because we know what aviation is like. It is such a small industry. Yeah. And again, just, you know, you, if someone looks after you, then look after them back. It's as, it's as simple as that. And yeah, that, that second stint on, on Hamilton Island was, such a blast you know we have such a good team and i've I've written this in you know my little my little blurb as well that you know, the first day back even though i knew where you know everything was and all the aircraft were there were some a few people who well in fact a lot of people who were still there from from my first first stint and so the tail was between the legs you know a bit sheepish looking around and 
the uh, the seaplane chief pilot came over. They gave me a great big man hug and basically said, "Welcome back. Let's get back to work." Nice. So, so, so that so that day we went back up in uh, in ZDA, and it was it was like putting back on a glove. You know, just knew exactly how how to fly. Yeah, yeah. and um, got the line check out of the way, and yeah, then uh, then eighteen months later, it was time for the next move, but. In between that time, they got the caravan racing, and man, just you know, fell absolutely fell in love with just off racing to to have the glass cockpit caravan, which was a 2010 model, I think, could have been a nine, but anyway, it was one of the first to G1000 in Australia, and the contrast to be able to fly a Beaver made in 1954 <laughs> to then to, to then go into a G1000 cockpit caravan, which you know had the three-axis autopilot air conditioning. Yeah, it, it, there's very few operations like that within Australia, or you know, probably even you know, looking out the window at the seaplanes here, they've got a few twin otters, but besides that, there's very few places where you could probably have the ability to have such a diverse range of of machines that you can fly within in the same day so it was it was very very rare to fly both in the same day but we had to be able to if we could yeah. and that that was just an amazing um, uh, it, was, it was a really amazing time in my life um flying was great met my now wife there as well so just so many positives came out from being on hamilton island the second time so yeah it was it was an absolute joy. Sounds like you were meant to be there. Of course, I, I, I de- I'm one of these believers that everything happens for a reason. So, yep. And so, I mean, my caravan endorsement was at Redcliffe Airport, just you know, northwest of yep. Brisbane Airport, on wheels on off a tarmac. Um, yours, I'm assuming, was the float plane. Yeah. So that was definitely interesting. So, I mean, you know how. Well, from from experience, how nice the caravan is to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, I've n- never ever flown a caravan on wheels. So I've only flown them on amphibs. So the first, for those who uh, are not familiar with how amphibs work, there's there's no nose wheel steering. It's all free castering. So you need to you're using differential braking. Wow. And I still remember the, the caravan, a 675 horsepower from it. Yeah. It just it just wants to move to move to the left all the times, and also being a turbine, you got ever so slight delay. You know, it's not yeah. as much as you know what I'm flying now, but it really taught you to to think ahead with just moving it on on the tarmac. But then we go back to the stick and rudder element. You know, for the first ten hours of flying it, I likened it to a, a six hundred seventy-five horsepower shopping trolley because <laughs> that's how it, cause it could, because 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 that's how it felt trying to taxi it around with brakes at now the I, back. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Now, eventually, you know, you do get a feel for it, yeah. and um, but yeah, the, the first the first the first uh, ten hours was it was a real eye opener, especially to have the performance as well. Mm. You know, I, I, I joke about it for for the global. You know, if we're if we're climbing from four one zero to four five zero when we're relatively light, we get better rate of climb than the beaver does at sea level. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, to, to, so to have that, and then imagine to go from the beaver to the caravan, and the caravan was doing 
fifteen hundred feet a minute with a heavy load. Yeah, it was it, it was it was an eye opener. So, but I I honestly adored it. It was such a privilege to be able to fly that machine for that company with the bunch of guys I was working for. I can imagine. She's definitely my favourite aircraft. Every listener knows that because I only say it every episode. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Honestly, it's probably it's probably the aircraft I miss most because it's there's it's big enough to feel like it's a serious bit of kit, but small enough that you can still throw around. And there's very few aircraft I think that do that balance so well. Yes, yes. My experience in the van is very different to yours. In in me doing what I was doing, but uh, I just love the aircraft, so capable. And I just harp back to that chat I had with Josh as well. You know, he, he was flying the, the caravan in um, western New South Wales doing the freight runs, feeding it a toll, and I remember him saying, you know, sharing ex- an experience that he had going through some pretty severe turbulence, and he just said, I wouldn't want to do it in any other plane. Incredibly capable plane. He put floats on it, or it can be an airliner, or, or it can be a freighter. It just yeah. it is it is a true Swiss Army knife of an aircraft. It's, it's one of those aircraft where it tr- truly is. If it ain't broke, why fix it? It's again funny talking to someone about who's flown the caravan. It, it's definitely the aircraft I miss most. Not not my favourite aircraft I've flown because now you know we'll go get onto it in a little bit with you know, yeah. the Falcon and the Global. But in fact, I do miss flying the Caravan more than the Seven X. Wow! Funnily enough. <laughs> so Hamilton Island, you've done the second round there. What came after that, and and I guess what led you to leave um, such an awesome operation? I shouldn't say leave. I should say move on. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. So I was not actively looking, but. At this stage, Sydney Seaplanes were then branching out to help some operations overseas because they Sydney Seaplanes are a good seaplane operator and their training is exceptionally good as well within the Australian landscape. Right. So by this time, got well over a thousand hours on seaplanes, mixture of beaver and caravan time, and coming up to must have been about fourteen, fifteen hundred hour mark. So yeah, probably about 1,200 hours on floats when get another one of those balls, just answer it and it's Sydney Seaplanes asking if I want to go overseas to go and fly a Caravan EX. So basically the, the big body caravan with a bigger yeah. engine on floats for, yeah. a, um, for a private businessman who had just purchased it. And it was the idea was that it was to complement um, his King Air, which he already had, but he loved, he loved being around the water. He had a resort on a private island in the Philippines and you know, also a, a fairly sizable motor yacht as well. So for him, he wanted to see how the caravan could fit into basically his life away from work, so his private life. And, and so got given the, the rundown of what I just told you. And by this stage... I kind of felt like I'd done all I could in in Australia with seaplanes because I'd also had a two-week stint flying the Sydney seaplanes as they were short-staffed and I was coming on leave, so I was able to go down and right. you know, fly, fly fly around Sydney. So I really felt like I could I had done all I could without flying the Mallards up in Darwin. Yeah, but um, this opportunity came up and spoke to the now wife about it and. 
we've thought we're in our mid twenties, let's go over and, and have an adventure. So we agreed to it, um, went over to get a US license based on my Australian one. So a, a validation with all my seaplane stuff and, um, then I had to go back down to uh, Camden to go and do single engine instrument racing again because I hadn't flown an instrument for a long, long time. You don't right. need to as a seaplane pilot. Yeah. So I so got all set up with that and uh, that led to moving to Asia, which was 2013. So yeah, that was, uh, that was the start of flying overseas. And that was in another world. So the, the aircraft was based in Subic Bay. So Subic Bay is the old US naval base, which okay. got turned into a freeport zone. So it wasn't it wasn't the real Philippines. And what I mean by that is that's a lot more protected. It's, it's a lot cleaner and it's a lot, I don't mean this in a horrible way, but it's a lot safer as an expat than to be right in the heart of Manila. Right. But there, there was also a private jet base there. So they had a few aircraft and it was what I didn't realize going over there, because I just thought it will be for a, you know, a couple of years and I've got to reassess what I need to do after that. Yeah. But it gave me an insight into how business aviation works. So Fluke went over there, got started and met the owner for the first time. I met his representative in Sydney and got a really good vibe from it about you know how the aircraft was to be flown and what we were to do mm-hmm. and in fact no it was 2014 because i was off to the simulator the following year which was 15. so went over there and just again flying wise had just an absolute blast and to be able to go from the short body i don't want to say low power caravan but the 675 horsepower caravan to the EX with a bigger engine. It was just such a nice step up in, in seaplane land. And it was operating it you know, fully IFR um, in and out of Manila Airport, which is always good fun. Like you're number two behind a 320 and you've got a uh, 330 behind you. So <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> um, exactly. We, we, there's a few times when we got asked, what's the maximum speed you can do? <laughs> okay. <laughs> But the flying around there, again, just what an amazing experience, which you know, for someone who was at the time 24, just wow. it was, you know, flying just the most beautiful islands and some of the approaches and some of the scenery, which I'm just so glad to have seen and to experience and to, to work now as a, a foreigner with some of the local Filipinos. It was just one of the greatest experiences I could ask for at that stage of my career. It was a very, very enjoyable job, one which I kind of, don't, don't want to say kind of wish, but wish it would have gone on a bit longer. Right. But the, the single biggest flaw with that aircraft was that it was heavy. And it wasn't the owner. It was It was someone, I think it was a Cessna representative or someone else who basically sold the owner you know the world and the aircraft was not capable of doing everything that you know he wanted to do right so it was very heavy and obviously that took into our fuel load so down at the islands we had to at great expense of the owner he had to then transport ja1 down to the islands because we were only if we went there we were only one way so we could not get back to manila or we could not get back to subic 
just because of how heavy this aircraft was. Right. So, you know, a caravan, and then it's got the VIP interior in it, which then you know, had its own lav down the back and a small galley up the front, and it had a fixed bulkhead between the cockpit and the cabin, and then you got floats on top. Yeah, a lot of weight. It was very, very heavy for a seaplane, and seaplanes, you need them to be lighter than their, or as light as possible, I should say, because... You, know, you you do have a lot of mass dangling underneath you, yeah. and that that does go into your fuel load as well. So that was a definitely a, a negative to the owner. Whereas the King Air could carry fuel, land on the strip down there, and go all the way back to Manila. Whereas we were one way. So of course, shipping Jet A1 into an island which doesn't have it does start to add up cost wise. Yeah. The other issue as well is that the Prevailing winds in the Philippines in their winter are very, very strong easterlies. So that ruled out landing on the water because it was just far too rough because there was no protection. But what it also meant is that we were then, we didn't have the liberty of being able to even use the runway because it was outside the, the crosswind limits of the aircraft. So again, he was told that the aircraft could do it. But that was the numbers for it on as a land plane and not as a seaplane. So right. there was a few few days when just ringing the uh, the air, the sorry the airport um, manager just asking what the wind was and then to have to ring the boss and say that I'm sorry I, I can't get the aircraft down there when in conditions like that. So he he understood um, and you know, safety always comes first, but. We started to hear rumors of uh, the fact that he wasn't happy with the caravan. He wasn't happy with the salesman he had and was looking at offloading it. Unfortunately, those those rumors did come true. And I was offered a job to go back to Sydney Seaplanes. But during this time, the single biggest luckiest break in my career. So the Falcon was coming down. Now, I had no idea or who the, who the captain was. Where it flew, all I got told was that you know there was a falcon coming down. Was this owned One by of, the same guy? No, no. This is this is just to be parked at uh, Subic Bay. Oh, okay. So during the time, also became really good friends with the Global Express captain there, and to this day, you know, we're still fantastic friends. And he was very one of one of those mentors who, you know, just right place, right time. Just we we got into a really good relationship and he was quite high up with one of the Hong Kong management companies. So he knew the aircraft was coming down and he, we had a chat one night and he said, you know, they've just lost their first officer. Like, okay. So hmm. didn't, didn't think much of it. And he said, you know, in all honesty, you should just tell the captain that you're available. And I kind of laughed and I said, I've got no, no, no multi-engine time besides from my multi-engine IR. Hmm. And I've been flying seaplanes for the past, what was it, five, six years. So, you know, I've got no real world experience. <laughs> so my mentor, I should call him that for the time being, just said, you never know. So the, the aircraft landed, came into Subic, and then we all got together at the local, um, the local expat bar, all sat around the table. I introduced myself to him. We got, we got talking. And then at the end of the night, we got asked by my mentor, I was like, did you tell them you're available? I said, no, I just did not feel like the time was right. He said, right, send an email tomorrow. This is his email. So I sent an email. 
And then he said, oh, you know, Alex, thank you for your interest. Yes, I am going to be looking for a first officer and I will definitely you know, consider you. Cool. So this is where all the stars align. So there was the slightest hope that, you know, my next job was going to be flying a Falcon. So we said no to the sure thing of going back to Sydney Seaplanes and we hedged our bets that this would come off. Now, of course, there was no guarantee, but somehow deep down it had to happen for me. So eventually after what seemed an eternity, I think it was about two or three months worth of wait and no income and just waiting to, to hear if something was going to happen. Eventually get the call from, call from the captain and said, uh, would you like a job on the 7X? <laughs> to which, <laughs> Hang on, let me think about this. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to which I think was the fastest two-second thought process I ever had. <laughs> I was like, mm, yes. So he said, well, you know, congratulations. You know, we'll, we'll sort out a contract. He said, I need you to get back down to Sydney ASAP to go and do your multi-engine instrument rating because the, the aircraft was VP. So... PPC cells came in registered so I could fly it on my Australian license, provided that everything was up to speed. So I had to rush back down to Sydney for, for 72 hours, jump back in the, the baronet for counter aviation, yeah. and basically you know, had to had to remember how to fly a multi-engine after a long, long time, and passed that, and went back up to the Philippines, signed the contract, and the following month, which was August, I was off to Dubai to start my 7X type rating. Holy cow. Yeah. I have first to admit, I've been ever so fortuitous in my career. So the, the things like this don't happen that often. And, you know, I know I am a lucky so-and-so for how it ended up like that. Right place, right time. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, there was another chap that came on, an American guy. He was an ex-deputy sheriff. Doug Wolf is his name. Yep. And he was flying for he was flying a caravan for a FedEx feeder. And he was talking towards the end of our chat, he was talking about just that. Being open, talking to people, making friends, you know, every everywhere he'd land, he'd go on go into the FBO and meet whoever he could. And you know, this chap, he's I think he's in his fifties from memory, maybe mid fifties. So he came to the game late. And he wouldn't talk about it. At the, he couldn't talk about it at the time in the interview because he had a, a, basically a couple of sticks in the fire, and he'd met this young girl who was flying a, a biz jet at some airport, and got talking with her. And um, turns out she was flying for U-Haul Aviation, the owners of U-Haul. Oh wow! And so yeah, I recorded the episode. He didn't let on to me even. He wouldn't tell me even off the mic. <laughs> yeah. about who the opportunity was with and whatnot. But he just said, you know, he's got an opportunity um, potentially flying a PC-12. Anyway, long story short, about a week after we recorded that episode, so I hadn't even edited it yet, he pops a photo up. He'd just been for a fly in this PC-12. And you couldn't tell it was U-Hauls because it isn't sign written, but the Red Joe, you, know, you can look it up and you could see that it was owned by U-Haul. And I said to him, oh, are you ready to haul? And he just gave me a big thumbs up. And I thought, okay, that, <laughs> that was his opportunity. And, and so now he's flying this PC-12. But because he just, he he was open, he was genuine, he was talking to people he had to talk to. Well, he would talk to whoever he could talk to. 
and um, and putting himself out there on a limb, which sounds similar to what you did. Of course, and it's one of one of the big things which I've had asked behind the scenes is how to get into business aviation. And again, I, I keep on saying the same thing. You know, rightly or wrongly, it is it is a bit of a club because it is quite difficult to get into. But once you're in, you're in as long as you you know got a good name for yourself and keep your nose clean. Yeah. But in order to to get in, it's just exactly that. If you're at an FBO or if you see an aircraft, which is what I used to do on Hamilton Island, if you see an aircraft with its door open, go and go and say hello. Nine times out of ten the pilots will invite you up. You know, if someone came up to me and said, Can I have a look inside? Then yeah, absolutely. You know, it's such a an important part of the process for anyone who does want to fly corporate is mm. just to just to show that you're out there and show that you're keen. Yeah. And that is an amazing story if you think about it on the surface that you've flown, apart from your IFR rating, you hadn't flown twins. No, none whatsoever. So I was going from literally overnight went from a single engine turbine to a trijet. Yeah. <laughs> a very, very slick trijet. It was. And, you know, I still remember being in in Dubai on the initial training and again just so fortuitous we had two ex Dasso engineers there who were doing the training and they were able to break the systems down into even the simplest ways that I could understand because you know I'd never been through a type rating before I had no idea what I was in for mm. and boy was I in for a shock you know it was four intense weeks of just in the, the fire hose analogy they're just cramming so much information into you and somehow you're expected to keep in 95 percent of it to in order to pass the type rating um or the ground score at least and then you go into into the sim mm. and i still remember because i was doing it under the easa format at the time for the validation onto my australian license and there was a time where part of it was flying a raw data rls which you know, done plenty of time in the twins and you know, doing training and done it a couple of a couple of months ago back down at Bankstown. But for some reason, just I, my eyes and my hands and my feet and were just were not coming together to be able to just do this one simple aspect and just remember just getting so frustrated at myself for something which I should be able to do and. You know, I still remember the uh, instructor in the sim pausing the sim just. And he had, he was a lovely guy, mm. just said, right, stop overthinking it. Fly it like you're going to be flying your caravan. So then we reset, went back out to, you know, five or six-mile final, whatever it was, and then it was a bit wobbly. And he goes, see, you can do it, but just to prove it's not a fluke, let's do it again. So another deep breath, motion off, so sim off pause, and, yeah, just something like that click. So, now I, I don't proclaim to be the world's best pilot, never will, but – if you just believe in yourself and also got a solid foundation and don't come across as an a-hole, yeah. you will have people who will look after you and want you to succeed. Yes, that is very apparent with these discussions that I'm having with pilots at all levels is how um, I think when you're outside of the aviation space, and to be honest, even when you're inside it, but early on in the piece, you, you have that um, feeling of, potentially of imposter syndrome and no one will talk to me but like you mentioned before you know if if the door was open on the airplane at hemo you'd go up and knock on the door and say hey can i have a look and we have a chat and 
this podcast is proof to it. The pilots love talking about aviation. Of course. And helping each other out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but as a little slight caveat to that, every now and again, as long as you're prepared to come across that one grumpy captain or that one person having a bad day, just don't let that bring you down because 99% of the industry are good guys. Yeah, yeah. So where were you based? You were based out of Hong Kong flying the Falcon? Well, the aircraft had a Chinese owner, but because Hong Kong had become so slot restrictive and was so expensive, the Falcon was kept in Subic. So that was probably one of those things which was which helped me get the job was the fact that I was already living there. They didn't have to pay for anyone to move. Right. They already had the visa set up. So that was definitely on my side. So the aircraft was hangered in Subic Bay, but it was owned by by a Chinese businessman. Okay. And how long were you in that airframe? I flew that for just under two years and unfortunately then got wind of the fact that the aircraft was potentially going to be sold. There's no guarantee, but there were a few uncomfortable mumblings around. So by this stage, and I've spoken to the captain about it as well, that the, the level of experience I had, it would be very hard for me to go anywhere else before, apart from stay in Asia. So he he did help me in, and looked at a few few jobs around, got um, there was a few offers that came through, but I eventually ended up taking one for an aircraft, which was supposed to be Hong Kong based as a rotation job. And rotation really appealed to me at that stage because we had child number one on the way. It right. meant that you know we could be based back in, in inverted commas, the real world, but also still being able to fly you know, these magnificent machines and you know having some good quality time off from it as well. Yeah. Yep. So agreed, signed a contract to this job, but then the owner had invested into into a casino in the Bahamas. So the aircraft was then to make its way over to become an asset for the casino. So it's still doing rotation, but we then went over to, to fly it in uh, the aircraft was hanging in Montford and West Palm Beach. Right. So there was a, there was a DASO service center there. So they managed to get parking for it. And yeah, so it was probably my shortest job I've ever had, but it was again just such a blast by the fact that you know we were operating for the casino, flying all over the eastern seaboard of the US, you know, up to New York, into JFK. Wow! Um, you know all all these amazing air- airports, which we we all want to experience one way or another someday. So yeah. Into JFK, we had gone over to San Francisco and done the done the visual approach by the bay. I'd been into the Napa Valley. It was just it was it was, and I put this down in writing as well that it was actually a really nice experience to be out of Asia for a bit and just to deal with the US ATC. Yeah. Now the the, the American ATC, in my opinion, is some of the best in the world. They are absolutely brilliant and they're there to help you rather than make your life difficult unlike some some ATCs I've experienced. So in that regard it was it was more learning how to fly in the US. There was a lot more you know, if if you can see the airport you're clear for a visual approach, which was going back to looking outside the aircraft again rather than having to 
basically follow the flight director. Yeah. So seven months worth of work. It was all over far too far too quickly, but it was a fantastic place to be for for seven months to be able to you know to, to get to learn the US to enjoy enjoy the flying. Um, had a really really good captain as well, and or two, two very good captains I should say because it was rotation. But there was one who I just clicked with, and he would throw me in the deep end, you know, weather, weather right down to minimums and decent crosswinds, and just to just to become a lot more comfortable with flying the Falcon. Yeah, outside of China and outside of all that area, into a very fast-paced environment. Yeah, well, owned by the casino, so you were assumedly moving wealthy Americans around the country. Yeah, wealthy high rollers, and it was again another insight into a world which you know, don't don't want to be part of. But it was very um, enjoyable sometimes to see how they would uh, how would go about their day to day affairs when they were being flown for free by the casino to then come in and they were expected to spend money. Yeah, yeah, right. So, what came after being stationed in the states then? So, by this stage, the casino were realizing how much a long haul three engine business jet was costing, shuffling people from Miami to the Bahamas. So, a forty five minute hop is not what these aircraft are designed to do. Yeah. So, they an aircraft broker in the US involved and. He basically said, you know, we can charter the aircraft, but of course the current crew can't stay because they're not green card holders and it's going to be predominantly US mainland based. So we we got given our notice and again, just fell into my lap that someone who I met prior had just resigned from another rotation job based back in China. He was going to EasyJet back in Europe. Yeah. And... He said, would you like my old job? And just perfect timing. It was literally finishing off one job. I then had seven weeks back in Auckland when my uh, first child was born. So it was great to be in, in dad mode for that. Yep. So said yes. I got, sorry, I got asked if I was interested. And I said yes. So then I got flown over to Luxembourg to go and do a sim assessment and do the interview. And... I kind of went in there knowing that it was my job to lose because there are so few, at that stage, there are very few 7X first officers readily available in the market who were prepared to do a rotation job in and out right. of China. Right. So you know, I still, you know, still went in there, um, you know, trying to be as professional as I could. And the first day, turned up and they said, right, well, here's your iPad for work. I'm like, well, this is a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> so do a SIM check and met the, uh, met the CEO of the management company and got the green light. And then, uh, then I asked the question, oh, you know, can I start in three weeks' time to, uh, to coincide with the rotation? And they said, uh, unfortunately, you need to be in China by the end of the week. So flew back to New Zealand, said, yeah, yeah, I got the job saw my baby go on and then uh, jumped on uh, an aircraft three days later back up to China and then did the first three weeks of, of my work over there. Wow. Uh, again, uh, right place, right time, but also very, very fortuitous with, with my career to date. Yeah, but I'm going to come back to it, Alex, and say it. For 
that associate that had resigned to suggest and recommend, you know, obviously you'd earned your stripes. You had to. Of course, I never, never really thought about it like that either. So, yeah, I, I guess I guess you are right, even though we were both first officers. But, yeah, we hit it off right away from day one. So, mm. um, yeah, definitely, again, it comes back to just you know, be, be yourself in the industry. Yeah, and do your best. Yeah. And so where was that stationed? You said, so it was out of China. Yep, so the aircraft was mainly Shanghai-based. So first three weeks I was there, we went down to Da Nang and Vietnam and over to LA, and I thought, you know, this is this is pretty good flying. But then that was my last one and only long-haul trip I did and did that year, so that was 2018. Yeah. The rest of it was up and down the corridor from Shanghai to, uh, to Beijing. And there was a few trips down to Macau, um, to the casino down there, and there was another one to the islands, but that was the bulk of the flying. Yeah, okay. Now, during this time, I was offered a potential to go and move to Japan to go and fly Global Express for a company over there. By this stage, rotation was starting to wear a bit thin um, because on paper, it's a fantastic job. You know, you work half, half a year and you got half a year off. Hmm. But what they don't tell you is that, you know, you are missing big chunks of your family life, especially when you do have young children. And that, for me, was one of, was one of the hardest things. Right. So my wife, she's been fantastic through my whole, whole career as long as we've been together. And we had to do a lot of adulting, deciding what was the right thing to do. Eventually, we decided to take the offer. Now, I know that some people might seem to be almost career suicide, so to leave a job within a year, which was a very good, stable, solid job. But, you know, from the personal point of view, you now I was down to the stage where I was up to senior first officer in the ranks, so we were up there, but there was no future if I stayed there to be able to get my command because they normally, they were very, very rarely did they promote from within. Again, oh. rightly or wrongly, that was that was just their company ethos. Yeah. I, st- I still probably had another a year or two worth of solid flying before I could you know, look at command properly, but it was something which also came into my head. So we did a lot of adulting. We decided that, yes, we'll give Japan a go. It was only supposed to be for a, for a couple of years, but to get some global time and to see, see what came out of it. So well, I said goodbye to the Falcon my final flight was was 2018, and it would have been in October 2018. So that was the last time I flew the Falcon. But I, I had one more rotation after that. So I then went back to New Zealand, had three weeks there, and then had my final three weeks worth of work. And in that final three weeks of work, for me, it emphasized I'd made the right decision as well because we did not fly at all once. So it, it highlighted for me that it was definitely a time to, to move on. Yep. And uh, yeah, then the following February, after having Christmas in New York, and then I was off to go and do my Global Express type rating in Montreal in the January. So got that out of the way, and then we moved to Tokyo mid February 2019. Yeah, and you're still flying for the same company now? Uh, so the 6500, so I'm still affiliated with the same management company, but we end up being taken on by an owner direct. During COVID, we were working hard and we had a we didn't have a quality of life. 
And to cut a long story short, we were thinking about leaving. Like we were going to leave Japan, but the owner, well, my favorite owner, because we were operating as a pilot pool, he found out that I was due to leave. And eventually we had a chat and he said that he wanted to have his own crew. He wanted his own crew from day one and this would be the time to do it. That's cool. That's so cool. And so is that what led to a captaincy in the 6500 or had that already come? No, so I got my command at the start of last year. So again, I was very, very lucky by the fact that I was able to use that absolute busy, crazy period of when the US opened up and we were doing a lot of charters from Asia to the US. So it was a perfect time for me to come out of COVID after not having flown a lot and to to go full on for my command. Now, again, to put a lot of pressure on the home life and forever grateful for for the better half for for putting up with it. Um, It was very trying on her as well, especially as we had number two. Um, By this stage, Australia and New Zealand had not quite opened up. So we we hadn't been home for two years. So the, the mental toll was taking it out of both of us. But it was the command was like the one big push we had to get through, and we got through it. And yeah, it was a very, very proud, happy to say, quite an emotional day getting four stripes on, especially on something as amazing as a global. Hundred percent. And to then make it down the line to know, and again, you're a very good interviewer because now I'm thinking about this to then have the appreciation of the owner to want to have us direct. It just emphasised how good the industry was if you kept a name for yourself. Yes. I think it speaks volumes, Alex, the fact that he wanted to do that and he wanted you as part of the crew. So five years roughly under your belt on the 6500 now, uh, you've got a command, you're flying all over the world. I know you don't have a crystal ball. Where do you go to from here other than being an astronaut? To to be honest, that's a, that is the unknown question. At this stage, I am... Very content with the job I have. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I am very very content with the job I have. To 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 be honest, I think in the long run, eventually, you know, when my time on jets is finished, I'd like to come back to Australia or New Zealand to be able to to fly a King Air or something and to not have to do the long haul. Yeah, yeah. It's a while away. For, for me at least because you know, the, the job I have right now is second to none. Oh, and that's why I was sitting here thinking, what the heck would you do from here? But I think, <laughs> exactly. you know, you're, you're bang on. It'll be that later life, you know, coming into semi-retirement. So we're talking a lot of years for you yet. Exactly. And it's, it's you know, I, I'm, again, it comes back to being very fortuitous to be my age. Yeah, just, it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing to, to be in this position with it, with a relatively young family, and to to enjoy aviation, to to also know that we can still go and do things later on in life as well. Yeah. Yes. So you've mentioned your wife a number of times in being in the aviation world. Even with my stint in aviation, I know how difficult it is on those who stay home, and especially with young yeah. kids. So you you obviously are married to an amazing woman. Absolutely. And it can be quite easily overlooked and we think, oh, this is all Alex's journey, but it's not. You know, your wife has the journey and your wife has the stories as well. I do, I do maintain that they are the unsung heroes of, of aviation because 
you know, you see a lot of marriages that, that do break up through it. But if someone is who, you know, they are behind the scenes, I should say, and they don't get the same credit as everyone else, but in all honesty, they do deserve the same, if not more credit than, than us, but just because, you know, they are, they're the ones who got to stay at home or, you know, they, in my case, you know, is, is overseas away from, away from her family. But yeah. the, the way it ends up is that if we play our cards for, for the long term, then we're in a very, very good spot. Yeah. Very good. Before I roll into the final set of questions, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I'm, I'm glad that it's, it's you know, gone on record for especially the next generation of pilots to hear. Yeah, if, for anyone who does want to uh, get into corporate, just keep your nose clean and go and talk to people. It's, it's really all I can say. So I shoot these questions at everyone that comes on the podcast. Can you tell us about a memorable experience you've had flying a particular aircraft and what made it special to you? I think going back to the caravan, we were talking about flying around the Philippines, just perf- perfect glass out conditions, amazing colours, and just to be able to fly around some islands. And we weren't landing there, but just to see some islands that people in their lifetime would never really get to see. And this is my work. It's just it was one of those pinch yourself moments where you know to to be able to go from flying, you know on the airways I have far to then drop down and round the islands. That for me is just is a memory which will last forever. Hundred percent. So different to flying the sixty five hundred. I mean completely different flying, but Oh it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What's one of your most fear filled flight experiences? Again in the caravan (laughs) (laughs) picking up ice in the Philippines and seeing ice start to accumulate on the floats and just one of those awful awful IMC days and just it was you know for my first big IFR job and yeah it was the initial panic of seeing the struts pick up the ice but then to know right you know we can well, I, had, I had options available it was, I knew where the base was but also that the tops weren't too far up from us but the ability to go oh crap this is happening but then mm. to to be able to think about it in a logical way again it's one of those one of those memories where my heart was in my mouth for about 30 seconds going all right we we need to think about how to get out of here yeah yeah and for those who don't understand the seriousness of ice and and let's face it most of the listening population of would have flown on an airliner and probably never given it a second thought but in something like a caravan you do have boots on the front so they're off the leading edges of the wings so there are ways to deal with ice that collects but there there are but we didn't have them because it was a seaplane ah right okay that's a whole new level but and and even then i was what came to my mind was weight so you were already saying that the ex is a heavy caravan and so you know every liter of ice you pick up is an extra kilogram of weight that you're taking on that you probably didn't have that much margin for. No, exactly. So it was, um, yeah, it was definitely one of those heart-in-the-mouth moments. Yeah. And it was the fir- first time I've experienced how quickly ice can form. So, yeah, definitely um, definitely something I don't want to experience again in a hurry. Yeah, fair enough. If you were given an expense-free opportunity to be endorsed on any airframe, which would it be and why? Seven four seven four hundred. It's just it's the the, the classic classic long haul airliner, which yeah. I think for many of us, you know, especially the mid to late nineties and early two thousands, just to be able to see, 
you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter what tail you had on it, but just to see the, the four engines, that long upper deck and the uh, the wingtips on it, it's just, it's one of those pinnacle aircraft in aviation. And um, you, you hear from pilots that have flown it, it's just, it does everything it says on the tin, yet more and yeah. everything about the 400 is just, for me, it's beautiful. So don't even have to think twice about that one. You answered very quickly. Uh, and you've already given some advice, um, but just finally, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in aviation? I think the big thing is that be prepared to accept you're going to make mistakes, but learn from your mistakes. And as I, you know, as I alluded to earlier, just go and make a name for yourself in aviation because you never know where it can end up. And I hope for you know getting my story across it, it says the same. You never know what door may open at a given time and a given place. That's the one big thing, if I can inspire people to, to do what I did. And, you know, if one person then gets their dream shot out of it, then I've done the right thing. 100%. And I think, you know, the key that I got out of the way you shared your story today was understanding that or, or not thinking that, oh, that couldn't happen to me. What happened to Alex couldn't happen to me because that is so false. Exactly. You're right. It is so false. It can happen to anyone with the right mindset and in the right place at the right time. And I've said this before, there's nothing special about the way I fly or, you know, I don't proclaim to be to be a Chuck Yeager. It's just as as long as you're a confident and safe pilot, adhere to the rules and have a good name for yourself within the industry. And by that, even just going up and meeting people then take every opportunity that comes your way mm-hmm. yeah, great advice as this episode with alex penrose draws to a close we extend our gratitude to you alex for sharing your riveting aviation journey thus far alex's tales from seaplanes in tropical havens to commanding high performance jets over iconic cityscapes have painted a vivid portrait of the diverse and thrilling world of corporate aviation Alex, until we catch up at some point in the future, may your horizons be vast, your wings be steady, your dreams forever airborne, and I'm sure your grandfather is very proud of you. Thank you, mate. It's been an absolute blast to uh, talk to you today. It's been, uh, it's been really enjoyable for me to also reminisce as well. Join us next time for more fascinating discussions. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform, and if you'd like to help out, feel free to leave a review. That'll help spread the word. Alternatively, you can listen to the podcast on the High Fly Media YouTube channel. Music for the podcast is titled Dance With Me by Asha Lee, available at upbeat.io. The High Fly Media podcast, uncovering the people and passion behind aviation, one story at a time.